the Purpose Driven Entrepreneur Podcast. We're all about delivering great content, thoughtful discussions, and tips and tricks to help you truly get the most out of your life and business. And here's your charismatic host, me, Matt Browning. Hey, it's Matt Browning. Welcome back to the podcast. I got a, um, a special bonus episode for you in the middle of the week here. And this is something that I've, I alluded to last week, and I just feel like it's time to, to have this discussion. So I want to tell the story, the story about the life and times of a very, very important person, someone who has impacted me greatly, and, and a man who I strongly desire. Um, more than that, it's almost it's a necessity that his legend and his life goes on, his legacy goes on. And I really, really believe that his legacy will impact every single person who hears this in your own unique way. Um, there's all sorts of different elements from family to overcoming obstacles to tragedy to triumph and everything in between. And this week for a bonus episode, today on September 19th, 2018, I'd like to share the life and times of John Frederick Browning V, my older brother. Now, if you're a new listener to the podcast, I want to apologize up front. This is not a normal episode. I'm going to go on for as long as it takes. This might be, I don't know, it might be 20 minutes, it might be three hours, and I'm going to give it as much time as it deserves. Um, So if this is your first episode, um, pause and go back in the archives and look for one of the shorter ones where we teach a little bit or look for one of our cool interviews, you know, whether it's with an entrepreneur or an Olympic athlete or, you know, look for something that's maybe more what you're looking for in the entrepreneur side. Um, John wasn't an entrepreneur, but I've had some really interesting experiences lately and I just wanted to share his story. So if you're still listening, I expect that you would love to hear about me, about my family and about some stories growing up. Um, and I hope that, uh, I hope that you'll feel, hope you'll feel something. You'll feel inspired. Um, you'll f- maybe at the end of this episode, you'll look at, at your life and the people in it, maybe a little bit differently. And that's for you to decide how to do that. But anyway, without any further ado, here it goes. Life and times of John Frederick Browning. So growing up, my older brother, John, he was three years older than me. So I came from a family of three, uh, three kids. My older sister, Monica, was eight years older than I am. John, three years older than me, and then me. So it was, uh, I guess, eight years old, five years old, no, eight years old, three years old, and then a newborn baby. So I, I've shared this at a couple of the places, but for just for everyone's sake, I'm just going to start from the beginning and, and uh, assume that maybe you, you know, from different places, you may or may not have heard all my different stories. So my sister was kind of the overachiever. I wrote about this in my book. And, you know, not not a, a negative overachiever. She was a very positive overachiever. She was a happy uh, girl. This is, um, again, Monty, if you're listening to this, or my parents, I'm sure, are going to listen to this and anyone else, this is all like the story kind of from my perspective because that's the only perspective that I have. You know, I hope that's fair. So my sister w- was a very positive overachiever. She was, uh, in my estimation, as a young kid, you know, she when she was 18, I was uh, 10, and she was always pretty happy and doing really well, and she did all sorts of extracurricular activities. My brother was always getting in trouble, and I was the baby who kind of didn't really have a lot going on, didn't so much got forgotten, that, that sounds bad, but like there wasn't a lot of energy that had to be put towards me, if that makes sense, because I just kind of rolled with the punches. So having a brother who's three years older than me, here's what it was like growing up with John. 
So, you know, I remember he got a Nintendo before I did. And, you know, I was born in 79. He was born in 76. So he got a Nintendo before I did. Eventually, we each had a Nintendo because <laughs> if you have two sons, then you know that it's really hard to share. Um, and, man, I remember, like, I just looked up to him so much. I remember when Super Mario Brothers 3 first came out. Oh, man, this was a big deal. Mario turns into... Um, what he turned like a squirrel, a raccoon, right? He was flying around, and I'd never seen anything like it. So our rooms were down the hall, and I remember like this is how I looked up to my big brother. Like I would sneak out of my room, and I would start creeping down the hall towards his room. Now if he saw me there, very often he'd try to throw something at me or be like, "Hey, get out of here," you know. But every now and again I'd try anyway because every now and again he would give me that really subtle kind of head nod. And if, you, if you've met my brother uh, in life, you can see this head nod in your mind. You know, he had long hair, and he would kind of look over to the door. He'd see me there, and he'd just kind of do a quick little nod. His head would, you know, his hair would uh, bounce a little bit. And that meant, all right, you know, come on in if you want to. And I was like, oh, this is great. So I just remember, like, how many times I just sat in his room and just watched him play Super Mario Brothers 3 for hours, you know, whenever he'd let me. I didn't, even, I didn't have to play. Like, I, I knew I wasn't that good anyway, and if I ever got the chance, I was nervous, and I'd probably die right away, and he'd play again. So I just sat, and I listened, or I, I watched him, and it was just a blast, you know? So I used to watch him play Nintendo. Um, so we, it was funny. We, you know, as a little brother and older brother, we had moments when I got teased mercilessly. I had moments when we had these bonding moments that were far and few between, but when they happened, they were real. You know, it was this brother bond of, all right, you know, the kind of thing where, like, my older brother, he'd tease me, but I knew that he had my back, like, out in the world. If anyone ever got to me, he they'd have to go through John first. You know, I remember one um, one time in particular, more than one time, let's be honest, he's holding me down, pinning me down in the living room, and he just drank this big glass of orange juice, and he's holding a loogie. And have you, you know what I'm talking about? Like, a, a, like you know holding the big spit wild loogie thing in his mouth and he's he's holding it over my face and it just starts to drip down from his mouth and it gets closer and he's probably you know he's sitting up pinning me down on the, on the living room floor so he's got he's probably two feet you know above me and he's just holding this loogie and it's getting longer and longer and longer eventually it's nearly two feet long and it's like right over my nose, and I'm like screaming bloody murder. I'm like, what are you doing? Get out. No, leave me alone. <laughs> Man, I, mean, I I hated it. I hated him in those moments. But I didn't really hate him. In the moments I did, oh, I should close the loop. So he would suck it back up. <laughs> Ugh, so gross. But he'd do that, you know, and he'd just do that time and time again. Um that's the kind of thing he would do to tease me. And there was all sorts of other things like that. You know, we'd, um, man, one time, my dad used to get these barrels, these huge, I think they were like 55 gallon drums, like these massive barrels that as a kid, you could s jump inside an empty barrel and stand up straight. It comes all the way up to your neck. So he got these barrels and we used to bring them in the backyard and I haven't shared, I don't think any of these stories anywhere. So, Hey, here you go. Here's some kid stories, childhood stories. And, uh, we'd run a hose. <laughs> so funny i don't i don't know if he actually knew that we did it this way but we didn't have a pool or anything and in the summertime we'd get these barrels we'd sit two of them in the backyard and i'd attach a garden hose to the bathroom sink 
and it, we run it through the bathroom sink, uh, from the bathroom sink through the bathroom window, and then turn on like you know mostly hot but some cold, so it would be like a pretty pretty nicely warm water, <laughs> and and go all the way through the hose, and fill up these barrels, 55 gallons each, uh, with nice you know 90 degree pool water. So we had these individual pools, basically, or individual jacuzzis um, that we jump into. And, you know, so I'm jumping in one, he jumps in the other. And, you know, hey, if you're an adult, I don't know why you'd be sitting in a barrel, but, you know, let's just say you were, yeah, you'd probably just sit and soak and relax, you know, have a drink or something. But as kids, we sat there for about, I don't know, all of like 14 seconds, and then we got bored. So we started making up games and things. And his, his favorite game to do with me, and Mom, I don't know if you've ever heard this story, but the favorite game was like the dare game. So, you know, we'd say, oh, he'd say, okay, I dare you to get up um, or take your, <laughs> I can't believe I'm sharing the story. He'd say, I dare you to take your swim trunks off. So I'm in the pool, right? I'm in this little barrel. It's not see-through or anything. I'm like private. And I'm, I'm probably, I don't even know how old I am. Maybe six, maybe eight, um, something like that, you know? So I'm, I'm about my son's age. So, you know, he runs around the house in his underpants. You know, he don't care. So he said, I dare you to take your swim trunks off and to like run over to the kumquat tree and pick a fruit and come back and i'm like oh okay so i I take my pants off jump out of the barrel buck naked run across the yard grab a kumquat from the tree you know probably 20 feet away and then run back in and jump back in the barrel i'm like and it was cold out there you know i'm like all right i'm back in and then i'd say i dare you to you know do something and it kept getting bigger and bigger and eventually it was like, you know, I dare you to, he dared me to run, to run naked all the way across the yard to the other side and go to the fence and, and look through one of those little knot holes in the fence, you know, and, and like jump up and down. And it was just, it was crazy. So we, <laughs> we were daring ourselves to, uh, to take our trunks off and run around and, and just got, like got worse and worse. Eventually it was like, and you're going to run in the front yard and run up and down the street. And I'm like, I am not doing that but that was john he was always pushing the envelope always pushing the um yeah pushing the envelope i i, I jotted down a couple notes because i knew I, I knew i would get lost in this oh i should probably mention gosh i i should have mentioned this in the very beginning the whole reason i'm doing this um it, it's in the show description the whole reason i'm doing this is today is the fifth year anniversary of his passing so we lost him at a really young age he was 36 Totally unexpected. Um, from the day he got uh, had a pain in his side to the day he passed away was six weeks, and it was, he was very very young with stage four colon cancer. And you know my parents were just down at the local park today for the fifth year anniversary. I'm in Phoenix at a residence inn right now as I record this, so I got time on my side. I'm in the middle of of doing a media tour, as some of you might know. <coughs> Excuse me. So. At any rate, I couldn't be there today, but it was a big day, and I thought, you know, I'd really like to, I'd like to honor John, and I'd like to share the legacy, so that's why I'm doing it today, that's why it's a bonus episode, and that's why I'm recording it tonight, and it's dropping tonight, um, anyway, it's, it's his story. So, some other stories, so we had, uh, you know, as, as boys, we always had you know, similar toys, right? So like, you know, he got one set of Legos, I got another. I had some Transformers, he had some Transformers. And then as he started, like, man, I, 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 I'm sure he will never forget this. Like he's still right now in heaven. He's saying, oh, come on. I can't believe you did that to me, Matt. I broke his Megatron Transformer. 
I got no apology, or I have no excuse, right? I, I broke his transformer. Vintage 80s Megatron was a very big deal. It was a G1, Generation 1. My buddy John Block is listening to this. He understands. Generation 1 Megatron is worth like a couple hundred bucks right now. And, man, I, I don't know what happened, but I got saddled with it. I was playing with it, and it broke. And I think it got thrown away. So I still have my parents saved boxes of Transformers. So now I've, I have them back. I've given them all to Val. We've played with them countless times. We're actually doing YouTube videos right now, um, transforming and like and doing a father-son showing how you know these vintage transformers. So it's a ton of fun. But what I have is I have the Megatron gun pieces because Megatron, if you don't know, he was the leader to the Decepticons, the leader of the bad guys, and he turned into a handheld gun. So in the '80s, these like this transformer turned into a legit gun. I think it was like a um, a 1911 pistol. Like it was, it just looked like a regular gun. No orange tip or anything. It was the 80s. And then there was these pieces that went on to it for, uh, you know, a scope and some different things. So anyway, I still have the black pieces. Val tries to put them together, but he still wishes there was Megatron. So my brother and I, you know, we, we played a lot. We had sibling rivalry and all that. But anyway, that was just a little bit of the history. I thought, you know, some of you might uh, might enjoy some stories from my childhood. But that was me and John getting into trouble and, you know, teasing me Um I feel like there should be more positives. The only the, the biggest positive I can remember as a kid was watching him play Nintendo. And there you go. As our teenage years came on, we got to this kind of place where it was like, say, I'm 16 and John's 19. Now, both of us, um, well, I, I got into the same things John got into. You know, I mean, I, I tell you, like, he grew his hair long. I grew my hair long. I, I started growing long hair in fifth grade. By seventh grade, I had a ponytail. And, you know, my big, my big brother had that. And I just thought, you know, that's cool too. So we both had long hair. He was into, you know, classic rock bands and he got into some heavy metal and I was into the same thing. I love classic rock. I love the Doors and Zeppelin and Pink Floyd and, and all that stuff. Uh, Black Sabbath. And then, you know, he started getting into more metal. I didn't exactly, but I kind of a little bit, but by the time he was like 18, 19, you know, he was, um, he got into drugs pretty heavily um, using and, and, and selling and, you know, all the friends was just, it was kind of around, that was what life was like. So as I'm, you know, my story is not, uh, not a secret to anyone. You know, I, I tell it often that I got kicked out of two high schools and went to my third high school in handcuffs. A police officer took me over to my Richland continuation school. Well, all that was following my brother's footsteps. My brother got kicked out of three junior highs, Three junior highs by eighth grade, he was like in getting in super big trouble, and he lands in this independent study slash continuation junior high in eighth grade, and then high school. I don't know how he he finished that, and he had a few stints in juvenile hall and um, some of the juvie camps and things. And I remember at the time I didn't really get it, you know, because when he was eighth grade, ninth grade, tenth grade, even, you know, here I am, I'm I'm fifth, sixth, seventh grade, so I haven't touched anything yet. I'm not smoking cigarettes. I'm not doing anything bad. And it wasn't until he got we both got a little older, like by eighth grade to my freshman year, that I started dabbling. And, um, yeah, we just experimented. And I feel like, you know, this is, again, I don't talk about all this that often. It's not a secret, but it's also not something I, I broadcast, if that makes sense. But I feel like this is the forum to, to share that. So, you know, the first time that I ever got high was with my brother. He took me outside and he said, all right, you want, you really want to try this stuff? And I was like, I guess. 
and and his his theory was he wanted to get, to get me so messed up that I wouldn't want to do it ever again. And I'll tell you, I remember that. I remember that very clearly. That first night ever, we're out in our backyard, and again, I think I'm 15. Um, and man, I came back into my room, and he was like, "How do you feel?" And I'm like, "Oh, I feel so bad." I'm like, "What is going on?" And and man, he loved me so much. He looked at me, and and he knew at that time his life was starting to get out of control. He was starting to use a little more and even other drugs as well. Um, you know, he was starting to sell some and it was just, he was just, and he was really angry a lot now, you know, earlier on, he, you know, he had, he had intense emotions. My dad always had intense emotions. Uh, he felt a lot. My brother, I think felt a lot. I was a lot more like my mom where my mom, she, you know, she has feelings, you know, mom, if you're listening, I know you got feelings and I have feelings, but the reality is we're not deep feelers. If that makes sense, you know, we're more on the thinker side, uh, a little more detached in general. I can observe easier. So looking back, and again, this is just my perspective. So I keep saying that because I'm sure at some point some of my family will listen. Um, and I want you to know that this is how I saw and how I experienced things. And I'm certain that everyone else that encountered us would have their perspective too. But hey, it's my life, right? So here you go. That's why it's my podcast. So listen up. So I think my brother and my dad were both the big feelers of the family. Um, John had so many feelings that he didn't know what to do with it. So like a lot of people and man, there's so many people in the world right now that do this, you know, they just, they get really intense feelings, ups and downs, and they don't know what to do because it's just so intense. And so oftentimes you get, you, you numb. So John would numb quite a bit and he was just doing this life. But I remember this, you know, he, I know that he loved me so much that he knew where he was going <laughs> and he knew it wasn't working. So when he saw me going, hey, I want to do what you're doing, he wanted to give me that scared straight kind of thing, right? Where he was like, hey, I'm going to make it so bad for you that you're never going never gonna to want to touch this stuff again and you'll have a good life, not like me. He didn't say that exactly, but I know that's where he was going. So he said, how do you feel? I said, I'm terrible. And he said, are you ever going to do this stuff again? I was like, no, not a chance. And we'll give it a few weeks or a month, then I'm back into it. And for the next few years, uh, I'm in high school. John's graduating, and then he's off, you know, working as a as an 18, 19 year old kid. Um, and we're both just kind of living that life for a while, you know. It's really interesting. So then something massive happened. He he got a job as a carpet layer. He worked for one of our family friends, uh, Aziz Aziz Ali. Aziz is a really really good dude really good dude. Um, he had a carpet, a commercial carpet company. So he brought, and he was friends with my dad and he brought John on, um, as an apprentice to learn the carpet trade. And John did well. He was making some money doing it and he was working on cleaning up his life. Um, he was sober for about a week off of everything. And he was doing some harder drugs and he just, he, he, he kicked everything. And this is my understanding that, that I believe it was about a week, but it was, there was some confusion on what was going on in the family at that time. And he was 20 years old. So he's 20. I'm 17. And I'll never forget this as long as I live. Um, I also had gotten sober. So I got sober at 17 completely. I'm 60 days sober. I just got my 60-day chip. I was going to meetings and everything. Uh, my brother's working on it. And then he got in a car accident. It was a really bad accident. 
um, he he rear-ended into a flatbed tow truck. It was a he was on the freeway. The truck swerved. You know, he he like he went to go in the exit lane. I think it was, and then the truck was going there. But then the truck saw him going there really fast, so he swerved back to the left. And then John also saw the truck going to the right, so he swerved back. So anyway, they both kind of went right, and they both went left together. And then he ended up basically hitting the back of the truck, but at an angle. So if you can imagine a flatbed tow truck, he missed that safety rail thing at the bottom. And he went right through it, and the flatbed, the back of the flatbed, sliced right through the cab of my brother's pickup truck. And it opened up the top of the pickup truck on the driver's side like a can of tuna. When you looked at the truck, the the headrest for the driver was hit and tweaked way back. John ducked as far as he could, but he still got clipped on the top of the head by the tow truck. His skull was fractured pretty badly. It was, I mean, moved uh, probably almost a good inch. Maybe not an inch, maybe, maybe a, a few centimeters, though. But it was cracked and moved. Um, he ended up having a, a pretty major traumatic brain injury. He had uh, a stroke or a few small strokes as a result of some severed blood vessels in the brain. And, man, it, it changed everything. You know, so I'm, I'm 60 days sober. I'm 17 years old. I get a call when I'm working at Sizzler. My dad says, hey, your brother got in a car accident. And I was like, oh, oh, no, that's terrible. And he said, yeah, it's pretty serious. You know, we're, we're at the hospital now. And I was like, okay. And I didn't, I didn't think that much of it. You know, I'm 17. I had a pager, <laughs> no cell phones. So they called me at work. And I didn't realize how intense and how bad it was. So I finished my shift, and I was like, oh, well, you know, they're going to be in the hospital tonight. Okay. So I grabbed some uh, all-you-can-eat leftover shrimp and some cheese toast and stuff, and I said, hey, uh, you know, I asked the manager if I could head out a little early because my brother got in a car accident. And <laughs> saying that now sounds just silly. Like, I, if I got that call today, I'd hang up and say, I'll be right there, and then I would just tell people, hey, my brother got in a car accident. I got to go. And everyone would understand. I didn't, I don't know. So I didn't, I didn't know how bad it was. And it was also my first job. So I just kind of thought, oh, well, okay, I'll finish my shift and I'll head over there. So that was kind of weird, but that's what I did. So I get over to the hospital and he's in ICU at, um, university, um, what UCI, whatever. I can't think of the acronym now, but, um, UC Irvine, uh, really great facility in, um, in orange phenomenal medical facility so he's the fifth floor in the ICU and I get there my parents are like a wreck and they don't know what's going on and my sister's there and everyone and it was a few days of basically life or death and no one knew what was going to happen my mom told me you know she didn't understand how bad it was either she didn't realize how close to dying he was um, she just thought okay he's in an accident and and you know how long what's going to happen and um, she's in this mode of like just waiting for the injuries, but everyone else is in a mode of, is he going to make it through the night? So if you've been through something like this, I guess I just want to, I want to start by saying for this part of the story, I want to say, I get it. It is, it's really hard. And most people don't know what to do. I think most people also don't know what to do to support you. So if you ever find yourself, and I pray that you don't, but if you ever find yourself with you or with someone you love in, in you know, one of these hospital, one of these life and death or an accident situation, um, you know, definitely 
reach out and let people do whatever they do. And, and look, if, if you have someone who's in that situation, um, I feel all sorts of things. You know, sometimes I feel like, oh, I don't want to bug people because I get it. So I'll stay away. Other people think they got to be there nonstop. My take is this. What I would want is I always, and I do the same thing, whether it's someone is having a family member, you know, with a, an illness or, or an injury, or if it's the opposite, it's a celebration and it's a, it's a new baby or something. So if you've ever had a new baby and you didn't hear a lot from me, my attitude is like, I remember, you know, when John was in the hospital and I remember when Val was born on both occasions, I thought, man, I'm just, I'm so absorbed right now in what's going on with my family that I don't really have time to think about other people. And the people I really appreciated were people who said, hey, I'm not imposing. If you need anything, I'm happy to do X, Y, Z. Um, don't tell people if you need anything, let me know because we'll never let you know. And that just feels like a burden. But what you can do is you can show up and bring food. And you just say, hey, I don't know if you'll be hungry or not, but I just thought just in case I stopped and I got a bunch of takeout food, just wanted to drop that off for you. If you'd like me to stay, I'm happy to stay with you as long as you want. If you want some alone time, I'll take off. You know, it's not a big deal. Are you okay? And usually what will happen is a person will want to talk a little bit. Um, but so I, I always try to take the stance of just, hey, I'm here to support. But if you need to be alone time, like, don't worry about me. You know, I'll, I'll take off. So that was the hospital time. And it was just weird. You know, it was, um, it was really weird. But it took, it took a few weeks and then a couple of months. And eventually what happened is our life changed because John, it went from, here's this troubled kid, excuse me, uh, here's this troubled, uh, this is a live to tape uh, episode, so forgive me, um, you know, he's 20 and he's troubled, to now it's a life or death, and the next scene, the next phase, was recovery, because he did survive, he lived for quite a long time, in fact, he survived for 16 years, from 20 to 36, After the ICU finished, it was, I mean, finished, it was, you know, a good couple of months uh, of working on this and it was shunts in, in the brain and it was, you know, um, surgeries and, and is he going to make it and working on the neurology and just, and there was so much to trying to figure out what was going on and what was going to happen with John. Within a few months though, it was really obvious he was completely going to make it. And he also wasn't going to be a vegetable, you know, so we had, he was in a coma, you know, for, for a good while. And it just, you know, it wasn't quite like the soap operas. He didn't just all of a sudden wake up, open his eyes, sit up and say, where am I? I don't remember anything. You know, real people come out of coma slowly. So he opened his eyes, but he didn't move. I remember that. The next day he moved his eyes left and then back right, right? So it's like he was getting some functioning back, but it wasn't a lot and he wasn't moving his body. So little by little, he got more and more. And I remember, man, I remember when he opened his eyes and he looked over and he saw me and he just kind of, he saw me there. And I was like, oh my gosh, you're looking at me. Like, this is going to be okay. The weird thing with brain injuries though, no matter what anyone tells you, I, I feel like it, like if one person, you know, and, and we're doing right now, as I record this really, really proud and excited actually for the podcast, we're doing about 20,000 downloads a month which means there's quite a few people that, that get a chance to hear some of these messages and stories and, and lessons. So if one person is listening right now and you've either, you have someone in your life who's had a traumatic brain injury or somewhere in the future, and again, God forbid, this will not happen, 
But if it ever did, and you found yourself in the situation that my family found themselves in, um, I want to tell you two things about it. Number one, do not freaking listen to the doctors when they give you doom and gloom, because every any brain surgeon, any any neurologist worth its their salt should tell you the honest answer, which is we really don't know what the brain is capable of, and I can't give you an accurate diagnosis. So if they tell you, hey, this accident's happened and this, you know, there's no chance of survival or, or whatever it is, um, don't listen because they'll be certain when it's negative. But then when people turn around, which happens all my brother turned around, all sorts of people start turning around and improving in miraculous ways, in God divine ways, um, in ways that, you know, the original scans don't show as possible. They always say the same thing. They go, oh, wow. Well, you know, we don't know everything about the brain, so you never quite know. So I just want to tell you that no matter what diagnosis you get, I don't, I don't want to have false hope, but I believe we can hold out hope. And it's never the end until it's the end. Never the end until it's the end. So he starts turning around faster and faster and, uh, and shocking people constantly. So within a couple of months, he, you know, he's out of ICU and now he's in a regular care place. And then he moves out of the care place, and now we're getting to this thing of like, oh my gosh, so he's definitely going to live no matter what. Like, we get that. He's also not going to be a vegetable. We get that. But the crazy thing is, so so here's factor number two. For traumatic brain injuries, the other piece that you want to be aware of is recovery is like like a, uh, an inverted kind of a hockey stick, you know, where it, it usually just grows by leaps and bounds. At some point, and it's different for every human, so this is where you know it's really important, do not judge or predetermine how good someone can get. But at some point for everyone, the growth or the recovery will taper off. It'll start to slow. It's very much like watching a baby uh, grow. You know, Early on in a baby's life, it seems like every day or every week they're doing new stuff, right? Oh my gosh, now you're walking, now you're this, now you're that. Oh, you're grabbing things. But as a kid grows up, the new abilities are fewer and farther between. So recovery from a TBI is very similar. So he was recovering by leaps and bounds. Now he's moving around. Now he's, he's moving an arm. Now he's starting to talk again. And he had to relearn everything. And this guy, let me tell you about the fortitude of John Frederick Browning V. He relearned how to talk, how to write, how to do math, how to type, um, everything. I mean, he literally, how to walk, how to move his muscles around, he had to relearn everything. It's like his body had forgotten completely. So as he's relearned everything, you know, a few months down the road, now we find ourselves in a, sounds so weird, but he ended up being in a convalescent home. Because as a, as a stroke and TBI recovering person, he needed the same sort of care that people towards the end of their lives needed. You know, he needed um, help with the bathroom. He needed, uh, you know, to be changed. And he, he was in a, a bed constantly, but he also needed physical therapy, you know, to come in and move his, his limbs around and help him to, to stretch and whatnot. So he really needed the same care. So he's in this convalescent home in Garden Grove in Orange County, California, full of 80s and 90s people. And he was 20 years old. He was the only kid there. Um, but uh, so we can you know we laughed about that and I thought it was funny. But over time he got uh, he got better and better and better, and he started doing more and more things on his own. So it became time eventually that he would move back home. So he moved back in, 
he was li- living with my parents when he got in the accident. So he moved back home and he went to his old bedroom. So now, just to fast forward, this is over the next, I don't remember the timeline exactly, forgive me, but, you know, around a year, it was like the first year, first two years, you know, now he's back and he, he has a wheelchair that's specially fitted. Um, after his stroke, he could only use his left arm and hand. His right arm, he could he could use a little bit, but not very well. Like, if you can imagine, like, say you wanted to, to hold a chapstick. I got one here. He could, um, as usual with stroke victims, the, the muscles will tense up. They'll constrict. So he was in a constant battle to loosen his fingers and open his palm, right, and open his, his uh, stretch out his elbow, right, Stre- um, stretch his arm straight. Because if he didn't, it would just curl right up, and that's really normal. So with his right hand, he could, like, force open his fingers and put a chapstick in it and then it would kind of he would, he could hold it but he couldn't really do much with it so there wasn't a lot of dexterity he's not going to use a pencil he's not going to um, really pick things up very easily he was really really damaged um, and then his legs you know his right side of course was was very similar and then his left side he, he was never paralyzed people thought he was he wasn't um, he could walk actually so he, he used a walker but he spent a lot of time in the wheelchair because walking was really strenuous Technically, he was a triplegic, so he had full use of his left arm, but didn't really have a lot of operational use of his legs or his right arm. So he's learning how to take care of himself. And a couple things I want to say about this. So one, you know, I'll come back to the taking care of himself. Here's one of the coolest miracles that I think ever happened. When he got in his car accident, his girlfriend at the time was pregnant. And no one knew what to do. You know, she's pregnant. He got in a life and death car accident. He might be dying. He pulls through. So now she has, you know, she's getting ready to have this baby. And uh, the father of the baby is in critical care. Um, It's just, man, like what a hard place to be. Well, throughout the pregnancy is paralleled with John's recovery from ICU and eventually getting out of the hospital and going to the convalescent home. By the time his daughter, Alyssa, is born, he is now getting out of the hospital. And he, I, I remember this so clearly. He was, while in the hospital, he was, you know, and then he understood that, that she's pregnant and he has a daughter coming and he's, he's, he's beginning to grasp all of this life that's been going on uh, over the last several months. And he said this, John said, you know what, I'm going to like, I'm going to recover. I'm going to work this and I'm going to, to rehab and I'm going to get out of this hospital in time to go see my daughter born. <sighs> and, um, I just got chills. <laughs> Sorry. <sighs> John left the hospital and he came in the new hospital where Alyssa was being born. And I believe he walked in with a walker. It's possible he was in a wheel- his wheelchair, but I, the memory I have, I, I believe he at least got to get up in the walker and he walked over and he went to the nursery area and he went to go and he saw his daughter being born. And it's, such a magical moment of God's provision 
over his people because this moment in many ways shouldn't have happened. Now hear me right. Clearly it should have happened because it did. But it's almost as if, you know, and again, in many ways it shouldn't have happened. He got in his car accident. He could have died. He would have never even met her. And man, Alyssa, I don't, I don't, I don't think you listen to my podcast, but if you do, this part's about you. Um, Alyssa's a, a really special girl. She's brilliant and she's hilarious and, uh, and she's loving and, and she's silly and, and she's super smart. Um, she's just so, so awesome. And the thought of, of John never meeting her, I just don't know. I can't even imagine that. So the miracle happens and he lives and he recovers and he recovers enough to go see her in the hospital. And there's, there's photos galore of, um, you know, of, of John holding his baby daughter, you know, sitting in the wheelchair. And then as she grows older, it's just, that's who dad is, right? You know, she lives with mom. Um, they eventually do, you know, they, they, they separated and they, and they broke up. They, they weren't meant to be together and that's okay. Um, but eventually what, what happened is she's living with mom and she would come while her mom was, was working when she was real young before school, she would come and stay at my mom and dad's house, you know, quite often, most of the three, four days a week, I think it was. And they just loved it to be the grandparents. So they got to help take care of her. But also John got to help take care of her too. And even though he needed care for himself, um, he got to give care to his daughter, which I think was a really big deal for him. You know, that even though he only had one good hand, and it didn't make sense for him to change a diaper to to get himself in there to be able to to do that. Um, it must have done so much for his psyche, you know, uh, realizing that hey, I can actually help someone else right now. I'm not the only person who needs care, you know. Someone else does, and you know, she grows up and oh yeah, my dad and he always just had a wheelchair there and a walker, and that was just kind of what it was. That was life. You don't know any different, right? And there's pictures of her, you know, kind of climbing around on the wheelchair and sitting on the wheels and just, you know, that was, that was my dad, you know, as she would say. So the first big miracle was that, that he got to actually watch her and he got to be with her for, for 16 years, you know. Um, he won't see everything that happens in her life, of course. He's not going to see her get married. He's not going to see her do all the things that she's yet to do because um, he, he's left us. But he got the gift of 16 years of being able to be Alyssa's dad. And I just think that's the coolest thing. So what do the 16 years look like? Well, life was very different. You know, one of the biggest things that happened on, on my side was, um, you know, I'm 17 when he got in his accident. Now I'm I, at 18. I got a job at the mortgage company with my mentor, Ed. And, you know, by 1920, I'm starting to make some money and, and, so kind of early into his recovery, I'm now kind of on this like young um, professional track and I'm making money and I bought my first house and my second one. And so I'm kind of living this life and he's rehabbing, you know. So in, in a sense, what I like to say is it, it felt like it felt like we reversed roles. And that's why I shared some of the stories growing up because I wanted you to get a sense that, you know, he was my older brother. And after the accident, I had to become his older brother. It changed. And I never had anyone look up to me before, <laughs> you know. And, and again, in a lot of ways, John started looking up to me because I was the able-bodied one. And I was the one kind of out in life doing stuff, you know, maybe quote-unquote. 
And I think there's a part of him that, that wanted that or at least was glad that I had it. You know, if he couldn't, he's glad that I did. Um, so, you know, we, we hung out as much as we could. And, you know, I lived in the area. So once, you know, once he got out of like the, the main rehab place, after a couple of years, his, his recovery slowed down. And again, it's normal, it's expected, and it's okay. But his recovery wasn't growing in leaps and bounds. And we started to realize, okay, as he's getting better and better, there's also this point that I think he's probably not going to get much better than this. And hear me correctly, you never want to say this is a good, as good as it gets because the brain and the body and God will always uh, baffle us. And, and it'll always go so much further than we give it credit for. With that said, it was pretty obvious that he wasn't getting really better. It was more maintaining, and it was nuanced. He was getting, you know, learning different techniques and things. But for the most part, we knew, okay, his legs really aren't getting much better. So he can walk with a walker real slowly, and we did a lot of walking with a walker, a lot. Um, and he had a special wheelchair with a transaxle where he'd have, uh, basically it was an axle that went across to connect the right wheel to the left wheel. So we had a second left wheel, so we'd grab both of those with one hand, and that would move both wheels. So I, I you know, we, we spent a lot of time together. I, I'd start picking them up. I'd grab them in my car, um, collapse the wheelchair, stick it in the trunk, and go take them out for the day. And, you know, I don't even know what we do. Like, our biggest thing was we'd go get haircuts. And after a while, when life got really busy, that was the one stable thing, that once a month, whether we needed it or not, we're going to go see Ashley down in Corona del Mar, which is where I used to live and where I used to get my hair cut for a decade plus. Um, love Ashley. She was just awesome. And I introduced her to my brother. She was like, okay, cool. And it was neat because, you know, his, I mean, his skull was like, it had been fractured and it was kind of bumpy, you know, and there was, so it was, it was a little funky of a, of a skull, but she got it and she was cool. And, you know, we didn't have to go to some new place and, uh, try to explain what happened to him and all this stuff, you know. So she knew him, she loved him, um, and we always got haircuts every single month. I'd take him out shopping. We'd, uh, you know, and again, I'm start to make more money. So, you know, we'd go out to the mall, we'd go watch shopping, try to get him some new clothes because he had no fashion sense. Um, <laughs> and I was I was really into to cool watches at the time, you know, and so I'd get like, you know, tags and omegas and stuff. And, you know, hey, I'm a young, yuppie, professional real estate guy, so I was all into that. Now, I, I still like watches, but I, I don't buy the expensive brands. I just buy watches that look cool. Um, and sorry if my voice is starting to change. You have to give me some grace here. Um, I, I've been traveling for the last couple of days on planes yesterday and today. So my voice is starting to go a little bit, and I'm starting to feel stuffed up, which is terrible. Not normal, um, but as soon as I finish this, I'm going to get a good night's sleep, and I got an early call time for TV in the morning. Uh, so as long as I get some sleep tonight, I'll be fine. But I think it's just my, my body's getting a little bit worked. Uh, so I do want to finish some other pieces of the story. So again, the main thing I want you to know is not only we hung out and had a ton of fun, um, we got to hang out and I got to, to in some ways kind of mentor him and share some things with him that I've been learning along the way. And I, I know that he very, very much looked, uh, looked forward to, to our hanging out. And I did too. Um, one of my biggest regrets, people ask, I always ask a question at the end of every episode I interview. If you've heard, I always ask people if they could change anything, what would they change or, or would they leave it all the same? And I have a funny way to answer that. You know, most of the things in my life, I would leave the same. 
I, you know, I was getting in trouble in high school and that, you know, that led me to writing a book on addictions and speaking at high schools. And, you know, so a lot of those things that seemed bad in the beginning, I wouldn't change. But one thing I would change is I would have spent more time with John in his recovery while he was here. As I got busier and I got more successful, you know, I, I started having less time for him. And this is just me, you know, this is just the truth. Um, I started having less time for him. And it's, you know, we do that with people, with our friends, with our family. When, you know, when things get busy, we have less time. And when things slow down, we have more. And it sounds like such a cliche, but I just, I always assumed I'd have more time, you know. <laughs> Sorry. I always assumed I'd have more time. Um, this is not helping my stuff, stuffy nose. <laughs> I always assumed that you know he was gonna be disabled and recovering, and and this is this, I I assumed this would be our relationship into our forties and fifties and sixties, and this is just how it was. You know, my parents would be gone one day, and and you know me and my sister would be there, you know, and he'd live with her, live with me, or, you know, like, we would be there, and, um, so that, that, that's, that is something I, I genuinely and unabashedly regret, that I didn't make more time in my busy schedule, uh, throughout the last 10 years, I, I really wish I did more, um, I never regretted when I saw him, I always was grateful that I spent the time and that we hung out together. We'd see movies, we'd get haircuts, we'd go shopping, we'd get lunch. Lunch, as he used to say. He's like, hey, Matthew, you want to get some lunch? That <laughs> was like our little inside thing. But I'd be like, let's get some lunch. And that was the deal, right? It was like, I'm always, I'm going to pay. Now, here's a story most people don't know. So when he was, <laughs> when he was selling pot and, and kind of at, at the pinnacle of his teenage drug career I was just getting into it so I would break into his room when he was gone and I would steal a bunch of his stuff so I would skim off the top of his his bags I would also break into his bank where he saved money so I <laughs> so terrible but I mean and again I'm 16 years old and, and you know following the same footsteps so I I mean I probably stole hundreds and hundreds I hundreds of dollars from him plus hundreds of dollars of pot from him uh, all by 16. So there was this little weird, funny part of me where it was like, you know, I kind of felt like this is my chance to pay him back. And we joked about it. At one point, I kind of told him that finally. But I don't know that I really told a lot of other people. But it was just, you know, it was my way of like, you know what? Like when you were my older brother, I took a lot from you. And we didn't have the best relationship. But now that the roles get to be reversed and now that we get to spend this time together, this is kind of my way to like sew back into you. So, you know, I just and I loved it. So I'd, I we get we'd go shopping together and, um, you know, I, I'd I'd buy lunch, I'd buy the Starbucks, I'd pay for the haircuts. It was just kind of the deal that we did. And um, and I I'm glad we got to do that. I really, really love that. Um, I got to you know, I really got to contribute. It wasn't the money that was, just, you know, that was one element it was the time, um, it was the joking, it was, um, you know, just building relationship and knowing that, um, you know, that I actually care. And it was a blast. 
So that was a lot of what our life looked like over the last 16 years. But here's what John's life looked like. And this is the main point. If you hear nothing else, if you read the show notes and you fast forwarded, uh, what are we like 48 minutes in right now? This is the thing I want you to hear. John Browning, this guy was a triplegic, brain injury with a stroke, use of one arm, one hand in a wheelchair. And here's what he accomplished. For the most part, most people would say, this is pretty much where my life stopped. And now they're just getting by and surviving and just doing your everyday stuff, you know, going to rehab and, and, and watching TV and living life. And he did all that. But here's what he started doing. Not only did he rehab hard, I mean hard, like he, he worked on that right arm probably more than, you know, some of the, the rehabilitation specialists said he worked on that more than any other stroke, stroke victim they'd ever seen because he was determined not to have the pain of the, the tightened up muscles that, that won't go back. So from the very beginning, he kept working on it. He also started going to the gym. And this is crazy. The guy, you know, he would go, you know, my parents would drop him off him. But I remember sometimes he would straight take his wheelchair and he, he, he rolled down the street, over the hill, all the way down to Tustin Avenue, which is a good ways away, and go take the bus. He'd take the bus over to the gym and go get his workout and get his reps in. And then he'd take the bus back or go to Taco Mesa, you know, and eat. And they take the bus back and then wheel back home. So it was like I felt so guilty sometimes. I don't have time to go to the gym. I don't got time to work out. I don't got time for that. And this dude would wheel himself to the bus stop and go work out. So he worked out constantly, you know, two, three times a week at least. He's lifting weights. He's doing reps. He'd put with his left hand, put a weight in his right hand and do some bicep curls because he could still do some work. It wasn't the same control. wasn't the same strength, but he would do it. Not only that, but outside of just working out and getting pretty swole, he also decided he wanted to go back to school. And this is so cool. I've told this to a few people before. I might have shared it on stage before, but this is going to go – uh, in the annals, in the vault of the podcast. So it'll be there for all generations for the rest of eternity, probably. He enrolled in school at Colorado Technical uh, it was an Institute or College. It was an online college, but they had some um, physical campus classes they could go to as well. He enrolls in school, doesn't tell anyone, doesn't tell a soul. He doesn't want the story. He doesn't want the why are you doing that? Why are you spending the money? And and maybe this is, you know, imagined in his mind or maybe it's real. I don't know. But he just thought, you know, I don't want to mess with it. All I want is I want to go to school and I want to do something. So his dream was I'm going to get a degree and then apply and get a job and I'm going to move out on my own. And I'm going to make something happen. So he's going to college. He graduates Near the time of graduation, a little before, you know, halfway through, maybe he tells me and he says, hey, Matt, don't tell dad. <laughs> don't tell him yet, but um, I'm going to school and here's what it is. So for the next year or so, I secretly helped him. He would, you know, he'd have a research paper or a PowerPoint to create and he'd say, hey, what do you think about this? So, you know, I'd come over, or I'd pick him up and we'd work on stuff. Um, he sent me things and I'd, you know, take a look at it for him or we talk on the phone as he's working on it. I give him some ideas. It was the coolest thing, but here's what I want you to imagine. So he's got a laptop. He's in a wheelchair. He's got use of one arm. So that means he's typing with one finger. 
Now, for those of you who hunt and peck, who just use your two index fingers to type, you know how, how slow that is and how hard that is to do. Imagine having only one finger to hunt and peck with. So everything he did, one hand, and then he moved the mouse over, clicked, and then typed again. So with one finger, he created all of his papers, all of his PowerPoints, uh, every assignment he had, he did with one finger. Just, I just never got that scene out of my mind, that, that image of John looking over the laptop, feverishly working on a report, and looking for each letter on the keyboard with the one finger. Well, I came closer to graduation time, and he does finally tell my parents. And they were shocked and like, what? What are you doing? He goes, look, I applied for the financing. I, the whole thing I'm doing on my own. I just wanted to go to school, and I wanted to do something on my own. <laughs> like we were just like all dumbfounded and, and, um, and excited all at the same time. Well, he graduates. He gets his bachelor's degree. And then secretly, without telling anybody, get this, he goes back for his master's. And he says, you know what? I can do this. I want to go. And again, we talk more. We're, start to, we're talking education. We're talking what kind of career could you get? I said, look, there's a lot of people hiring with disabilities. Um, there's a ton you can do and you can bring to the table. And we started really having that conversation. He tells my dad, by the way, I'm getting my master's degree. He graduates. Now he has a bachelor's and a master's. And he's muscular because he's working out at the gym constantly. Oh, did I mention, in the middle of his rehab with his brain injury, his stroke, his triplegia, he also, in rehab, met the love of his life, his wife, Bonnie. That's right. He didn't have to live a life of being single because he met this girl, Yvonne. We call her Bonnie. Um, and they were both at a rehabbing place together. She had a, uh, an accident as well that she was rehabbing from. And they fell in love, and they started dating and hanging out, and and it was cool. You know, she lived at, at, at her family's home, and John lived in his family's home. So they would spend time at each other's houses, and they were dating, and eventually um, he proposed. <laughs> it was so cool. And and then he got to get married, and, you know, his daughter was there. Um, the whole family was there. It was a beautiful wedding. Um I, of course, got to be there with him. Um, I think I was the best man. I mean, I'm pretty sure. It was so cool to watch this. And here's, I want to paint this scene for you. So we're at the wedding at the reception. They're married together, right? And he spent most of, of course, the ceremony in the wheelchair. But during the ceremony itself, uh, and it was it was really important. This was really important to John and to me that he got to stand with his bride as often as possible. So like during the ceremony, um, we had, you know, we made sure, you know, he came up and he walked up in his walker and he walked all the way up in his walker and he stood there holding his walker for support, but standing. So we got to stand next to her. And that was really cool. Cause again, he, it was really hard to, to stand and walk a lot. So most of the time it, it was wheelchair cause it was just easier, but he, he'd get up and walk sometimes. And then at the reception, this is so cool, when it came time for a first dance, so he's in the wheelchair, and you think, hey, my husband's in a wheelchair, that's cool, you know what, we're going to dance together, and, I, and she's walking, and he's, you know, spinning around, and it'll be cool, but when it came time for the first dance, again, that was a moment that was really important, here's what we did, so um, two of us came over and helped him, you know, he stood up, um, pulled the wheelchair away, 
And then rather than hold on to the walker, he held on to Bonnie. And the two of them got to stand, and everybody, just for a moment, right, just for a moment, all of us just backed away. And it was just the two of them standing in the middle of the dance floor, just quietly and slowly dancing back and forth, holding on to his wife for the support. And in that brief moment, man, this is hard to do. I, 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 I didn't realize how hard this would be. Um, but for that brief moment, he wasn't disabled. There, you know what I mean? There, there was no, no issue. There was no wheelchair, no walker, and it was just the two of them in love dancing. And, and they have a future together, and they have just total freedom. A couple minutes later, of course, then we, you know, bring the chair back in, let him sit back down because it was really tiring. And, and then we had, you know, the, the rest of the ceremony or the rest of the reception was a ton of fun. Um, so he, you know, he got to, he got to fall in love. He got to get married. Not only that, but he also got to go on the honeymoon. How cool was that? This sounds weird, but I went on the honeymoon with him. <laughs> Um, you know, cause there needed to be kind of a, a chaperone, you know, not, not a chaperone for, you know, certain times that, that was up to them, but I was a chaperone for kind of for, uh, health and well-being. So both of them needed someone to look after a little bit physically and to get through the airport and medication and things like that. So, um, I went, my, one of my best friends, Mitch came along, uh, we were both single. So came along the honeymoon with me. I was like, Hey, if I'm going to chaperone you guys, you have your time and me and my buddy will hang out. So the four of us <laughs> went on a honeymoon together. What a crazy story. And I mean, I've known Mitch now for uh, 20 years, one of one of my dearest friends, and it was just it was it was a fun time to have. So we went on there. We went to Cancun, Mexico, and Bonnie and John. The important thing is they got to have their honeymoon together. And I don't know. Sometimes I think it, th- these are the kind of things that you know potentially like couldn't or shouldn't happen. That I know there's other people that get in these situations. They're life-altering situations. And they don't give themselves a chance to have something like this happen. And I'm just so grateful that they got to do that. So just, you know, think about that, right? The 16 years was almost like his dash in between. He could have, should have died at 20. He gets a second chance. So let's re- let's go over this for a second. Second chance at life from 20 to 36 years old. He gets to witness his daughter being born. Be there as her father as she grows up into nearly an adult. Um, a young woman at least, he gets to have a whole second chance to rebuild a relationship with his mom, with his dad, with his brother, with his sister, with everyone in his life. Because we were on the outs, man. We were not not liking each other very much you know, just before the accident. After the accident, his personality changed. It was a whole different person, a whole different John. He wasn't angry anymore. Um, you know, He was actually fun-loving, so we got to have a great relationship. He got to get a bachelor's degree, get a master's degree. He gets to fall in love again. He gets to get married, go on a honeymoon. The guy was nonstop. At 36, this is the, I guess, the next chapter. At 36 years old, one day, one night, late at night, he was back at uh, at my parents' house, and he was up in the bathroom, and and his stomach really, really hurt. And it hurt really bad, and eventually it hurt so bad they called an ambulance and he went to the hospital. He never left the hospital. They didn't know what was going on, but they're doing tests and tests and tests. And eventually, they figured out it looked like there was something. There was a, a perforation in his colon, 
so they're like, well, this is a big deal. So they go to they're they're re- they're doing more scans. We eventually get transferred to a, a bigger hospital, and through all the scans and all the testing, they find out that it looks like there's cancer. It was stage four colon cancer, thirty six. We don't know why or how, but but that happened. Well, I I, I don't want to I don't want to share. How should I say this? I guess I don't. I don't want this episode, this share, to become about the last six weeks of his life because that really was just the last six. The real legacy of John was, to me, the sixteen years in between when he got a second chance at life. You know, after the drugs, after the the rehabs, after getting kicked out of schools and and being angry, and you know, after like kind of that first twenty years. I mean, kid years were kid years, but that first run. It was really hard for him, and I don't know that he he got to where he wanted to be. The second chance at life, from 20 to 36, man, I'd be hard-pressed to find someone who did a better job with a second chance at life than John did. It was just incredible. You know, during those last six weeks, um, it was intense because it was all about, it was a lot of flashback, too. We didn't know if he was going to live or die. We didn't know what was going to happen. I assumed he was going to live. And it was, we're going to get through this, but eventually it, it got worse and worse. And they, they finally opened him up to do a surgery. And when the, the surgeon opened him up, um, it was pretty devastating news because he said it was basically everywhere in there. And, uh, you know, he still did the surgery, removed some of the major mass, and then closed him back up. And, and you know, and we went through all the treatments. We did everything natural. We did everything. We did everything that we could possibly do. At the end of it all, it was just too much. And it was too little, too late. It was, it was, it was just so close. The last few days, um, it became really obvious that that he was going to pass. And I made, um, and this was hard to do. This was really hard to do. So I think, uh, yeah, I want to share this part for anyone that finds themselves in this situation too. To be the family member that says, "Hey, um, I don't want to say we should give up hope." But I think we should give up hope. And I think we should prepare ourselves and transition to what this is, which is no longer can we save him, but now the question is how should he pass? What should we do? Where should we be? And to my recollection, I could be wrong if someone's listening, but I believe I was the first person to really broach that and bring that up at the hospital of, you know, we need to start looking at, you know, hospice and looking at the final uh, situation. Man, that was hard to do. But we talked about it, and eventually everyone agreed that, yeah, it's it's basically in this place now. We've done everything, and, and it's just getting worse. And I just remember feeling so strongly about this. I, I felt so strongly about it. You know, I told many family members, I said, listen, I I don't want my brother to die in the hospital. I don't want him to to pass away in a hospital, in a hospital bed, getting poked and prodded and tested and blood pressure cuffs and nurses in and out. And, and God bless them for what they do. But at, at the end of someone's life, it's like, you don't want all that stuff, you know, and you don't need it. So I lobbied to, to start hospice and to bring him into our home. Uh, my wife and I at the time lived in Orange. And we had a house there and we had a room there and there was a front living room and we, we did that. And we brought him back and he entered the hospice and we converted the living room. We put a Chinese screen up kind of between the kitchen there 
um, and we moved the couches and everything out and we converted the living room to basically a miniature, uh, like a hospital bedroom. And it worked out nicely instead of being a bedroom in the back of the house, um, as far as, you know, as nice as a, a hospice time can be. Uh, if you, again, ever find yourself in the situation, I pray you don't. Um, but statistically someone's going to. What I really think was a, a benefit to that setup was the hospice caretakers, who were so lovely, by the way, so lovely and so supportive. They could come and go through the front door. They could come in. They could sit in the dining room right there. And they could, we, you know, the whole living room slash dining room became kind of like a, uh, a hospital in a way. It became a space for him. Also, people could come and visit anytime they wanted. And they could sit in the family room with us. And then they could go back kind of into there where John was and visit with him. So there was privacy. But it also wasn't taking over our entire family too. You know, I still had a place we could, my family, we could retreat to the bedroom or down the hall, you know, and we could have that, uh, that space for ourselves too. So I'm glad we did that. It was three days. He, he, three days in hospice until he passed away. And, um, man, this part was weird. And. You know those, those the the last moments, and if you've if you've had the experience, you know what I'm talking about. You're with someone you love deeply, and it's the last days, the last hours, and you know that it's coming. And they warn you, hey, based on what we the life signs and so forth, uh, we think it's probably hours. And everyone's gathering around and holding his hand, and and the whole family's there. I had a weird experience, and I don't. I don't know. I, I know I've said this to a couple of people. But I don't know who I've told this to. So this is pretty fresh. I remember it was about 36 hours before he passed away. 36 hours. Day and a half. And that was the moment. And again, this was just me and my discernment, my perception. Man, I'm getting so stuffy now. Sorry about that. I I watched him leave. I I felt, and this is so crazy. So like, he was in my house for about three, almost four days. And for the first two days, I was his protector. Um, man, I slept on the couch. I was, you know, talking every time the hospice people wanted to give him a drug or do anything. I was right there going, hang on a second. What are we doing? What are you doing now? Why are we doing it? You know, like I was very, very protective of John. And I also knew he was in a great deal of pain. So everything we did, everything they did, you know, okay, you know, sometimes they say, okay, it's time to move him. We got to move him left. We got to move him right. And I'm like, hang on a second. Like, let's do this together. And I was very in tune with his body at this point, And I knew what hurt and what hurt less. So I, you know, I moved his leg in a certain way and helped to roll him a little bit. And it was like, I just, I just care. Oh man, when he hurt, I hurt. <laughs> and, and he just been through so much. I mean, he had, uh, he had, a big piece of his colon and his, his lower intestine removed. He had another brain surgery to have a shunt removed when he would like all this happened over six weeks, plus the daily moves and, and treatments and everything. It was intense and chemo. There's so much that happened. But at those last days, I was like, I just, I felt so strongly that I just don't want him to hurt anymore. So I was very protective. But then a strange thing happened. It was, yeah, about 30, 30 hours, 36 hours, something like that. All of a sudden, I just felt this peace. And when I was in the family room, looking through the screen to the living room where he was, I no longer felt a pull. Like, 
my brother's in there and he needs me. I just felt like, oh, that's the room where the body is. And I know that sounds, I don't know, morbid or weird or whatever, but you, I'll, I'll bet you, you're probably nodding along going, oh, I, I, if you've, if you've experienced that, you get that. I, and I don't know what, you know, I don't know what the truth is about exactly when and how we leave our body or what, you know, what happens. Um, I know where we go. I know my brother had a relationship with Christ, which I'm incredibly grateful for. At the time, I didn't. This was five years ago. Um, I, I 100% did not believe that God sent his son to die for us and get risen again. I didn't believe that. Today, I do. And I owe my brother so much for that. But he, he passed away knowing Christ. He passed away under his grace. And regardless of, you know, I know that I have listeners with all different faith backgrounds. So this is not anything about you or about that. This is just the story of me and my brother. So I hope that's okay. But looking back now, knowing that he passed in a relationship with God... Um, I, I couldn't ask for anything more. You know, it, it was hard to watch. It wasn't easy at all. But I know where he is, you know. He's got eternity, man, and, um, and he's healthy again. And, and he's living it up, you know, with a resurrected body, and, and he's okay. Um, my parents believe he's, he's down here with us. Um, Sorry, mom and dad. I, I I love that, but I don't like. I th- I think he there's a, there's probably a consciousness of, you know, that he knows what's happening, and there's a way that we transcend, you know, in in this world and that. So I don't doubt that he knows what's happening, but I also I don't know. I I just don't buy that he's sitting in the chair next to me, and I guess for me I don't need to buy that. You know, like if you believe that and it's true, awesome. If you believe it and it's not true and it feels great awesome. And I could be totally wrong, right? I'm not saying I know everything. I could be totally wrong. Um, but I guess, I don't know, for me, I, I don't need him to be at the chair next to me as I record this. Now, if I feel a touch on my knee and no one's in this hotel room, I'm going to freak out right now, just so you know. Um, but I, I, I think um, I think his consciousness has never gone away. Um, I think that he's in eternity and I think he's seated in heaven uh, with Jesus, man. And uh, and he's healthy as can be, and it's phenomenal. I couldn't ask for anything more. But the point of that part was it was several hours before he passed that I know he passed away. His body was still going, but I, I just I just know that his his soul was transitioning or whatever, however that works exactly. I know that it was changing. And for the last while there, I didn't need to protect him anymore. And like, I, it was weird. I'd, I'd even hear, you know, a moan of like, uh, and I just, somehow I had peace. It was like, oh, I'm not worried because some, some deep part of me knew that my brother isn't hurting, but that body is still going through what it's going through for as long as it needs to. And then within the, within a day, I, you know, I don't think it was 36 hours. I think it was within 24 hours or so. It was about a day. Um, but by the next day. Um, I think I went in the room, but I didn't need to be in the room. It was like I already, I already said goodbye. I already talked to him. Um, he, he wasn't extremely lucid towards the end, but we had a couple of lucid moments 
that I got to say I'm sorry and I got to say I love you and I got to assure him, um, you know, that he's going to be okay where he's going. And that was hard because I didn't know where he was going. You know, at the time, I wasn't sure if he was in heaven or if he was a worm food. I didn't know. Um, but I got to I got to still be there for him and say goodbye. So I didn't need to, to say goodbye and hold his hand in the last, like, hour or the last five minutes um, when his heart finally stopped and his breathing stopped. I didn't need to do that because, because I already did. And I believe that he already, he already transferred. So that was, that that was, I don't know, just, and maybe again, maybe you get something out of this. Maybe you don't, um, you know, maybe you're listening to me and you've had loss in your life and this is cathartic just to hear someone else, you know, that, you know, if you know me, someone else talking about, um, talking about their loss and talking about, um, the final days. I don't know, but here's what I want. Here's what I want to take away from this: is I just, you know, this isn't a this isn't a class or a lesson or really this isn't even a podcast episode. Um, I don't have an agenda. I just know that it's five years to the day that I lost my brother, um, and the world lost a um, a really really tremendous man in in John Browning. Um, and I wanted to take this this opportunity to to speak about and to leave what I believe is so much of his legacy. So you got to know him a little more and a little bit more about our relationship. Um, Here's his legacy to me. Number one, his life was not a tragedy. And I spoke at this at his, his service. It upset me a lot when I hear people because you can't help but look at it, right? It's like, Oh my gosh, what's next? Here's this guy who's getting in trouble and, and, you know, using drugs. And then he gets in a car accident and now he's disabled and he almost died, but he made it through, but only to be permanently disabled. And not only that, but then he finally is, you know, starting to get better. Maybe he has a life ahead of him. And now he dies of cancer at 36. Anyone in their right minds would say this is a tragedy. And I say there's a very fine line between tragedy and legacy. I believe John's life was a gift. I believe it's, it's a, it's a legendary legacy that will not be forgotten. I believe it's an inspiring tale, not a tragedy. It's an uplifting romantic comedy for goodness sakes. You know, here's a guy who, who again, by all rights could have or should have been dead by 20. And it's not a tragedy that now he passed, the tragedy would be if he didn't live the life he got given. He got given a second chance. He got given a second 16 years to do something with, and he used those well. He was a great dad. He was a great father, a phenomenal husband, a great brother and son. Um, he was a good man. And in those 16 years, he took care of his body. He had fun. He laughed hysterically. He barbecued like nobody's business. He, dang, he was a good barbecuer. Really good. Um, he went he, he educated himself to create a future, even if he didn't need it down the road, obviously. But he created a future with a master's degree. And by the time he went to the hospital, he had applied for a Ph.D. program. So uh, Bonnie lovingly calls him uh, Dr. Browning because he had applied for his doctoral, uh, doctoral, 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 
however you pronounce that, I'm not a doctor, um, the doctoral program at the same school, and he was going for his PhD. You know, he got to he got a second chance at love. So he got to to second chance of being a dad. He got a second chance at education and the life. He got a second chance at, at physical fitness. He got a second chance at, at, at fun and family and laughter. He got a second chance at, at love and, and being being married. He got to do everything he wanted to do. He got to travel. He got to visit new places. He did some incredible stuff. And here's the, the most important thing in my estimation is this. He never, ever complained. Not once. He didn't complain and say, oh, it's, you know, poor me. And oh, my. Like, if that was me, I got to be honest. If that was me, I would be I would be complaining all the time. It would be really hard to maintain a positive attitude when, you know, I'm going through this and look at my life and what's happened to my body, my brain. And I don't know. I just feel like I would be a lot more negative. And John was just, he was positive. And sure, he probably, he had his moments, you know, mostly probably with my dad when, you know, my dad was trying to take care of him and help him with stuff. And then he didn't want to have the help. And, you know, they, there was those moments, right? And, and that's fair. Like, what are you going to do? Um, that's, you know, that's, that's family and, and walking through life-altering, disabling circumstances. But all in all, and especially in the big picture, he never complained. He didn't say it was too hard. He didn't say he didn't want to do his therapy. He worked, he pushed through and did his physical therapy um, he did his education. He, he did everything that any man would ever want to do in life. And he did it really well. So John, if you're listening, brother, um, man, I love you. You are an inspiration to me. In so many ways, I want to be like you when I grow up, you know, I'm doing I'm doing stuff in the world and I'm 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 you know I'm living my life the way I can but there's just so much in how you lived your life that I strive to emulate. Um I want to have the fun that you did. I want to care deeply about people the way you do. You had such a pastor's heart and um man you're you're missed. Um I know you're gone. But I sound like a Hallmark car, but you're gone, but you're never forgotten. And with this episode here, I hope um, more and more people over the years will hear your story. And hell, the more famous I get, the more people are going to hear your story. So that's a win for both of us, brother. I love you. Um, Say hi to Jesus for me. And if you're still listening at this point, um, thank you for listening and thank you for hearing the story. If you would like to comment, if you want to say anything to me, um, if you have a story of your own, anything at all, um, I'm going to post this episode on Facebook and on uh, probably on Instagram as well. So I'll put it on social media. So if you listen to this and you were touched or you have something you want to share about this, please um, comment or you can um, DM me and send me you know something. Um, I was certainly in love, love. You have no idea how much I would love to hear your story, how this interacts with you, and if this has helped you in any way, I, I, I would like to know that. Um, yeah, so please share. Obviously, I'm at social media, at Matt Browning. You can find me there. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast. 
Make sure you subscribe. That way you'll get this episode, of course, right now, but you'll get any other shows right when they drop, and you'll be able to uh, to pick them up and interact with me uh, in pretty close to real time. All right, my friends, thanks for listening. Um, really appreciate it, and I will talk to you in a couple days with our next interview on Interview Friday.